completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Move fast and break things. Fail fast. If there's one thing the startup world is fixated on, it's speed. And investors seeking quick returns often fuel that fire. In that culture, Tony Chan, the CEO and managing partner of the venture capital firm Qball, instead encourages companies to practice patience. Take the long view. Build a good company. In his most recent book, Good People, he explains why businesses should take their time and incorporate truth and compassion into what it means to win in business. From boom to bust and back, here's our talk with Tony Chan. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Tony, I would love it if you'd start us off, take us back in history at the launch of Zephyr, which was one of your earliest companies. Yeah, so great to be here, Megan. So Zephyr started first becoming the seedling of an idea around the mid-1990s, and it's hard to believe at that time when we started thinking about it, there were probably about 10,000 commercial websites in the world. And the concept of Zephyr was very straightforward. It was actually thinking that eventually this thing called the internet that was being commercialized would be needed by every business, and those businesses would need certain business applications. We didn't have terms of cloud or web applications, but back then, everyone just thought of the internet as simply an extension for brochureware. Yeah. And so we built a business that was about uh, strategic advisory around the business side of the internet, what we call the McKinsey of the internet. But then we ended up focusing on the implementation of large-scale web solutions, really starting its founding probably around 1996. Got it. And so spotting the internet as something that could be transformational that early on, you know, I think it's easy to look back at that now and say, absolutely, it, it changed everything. But how do you take something that is a really nascent idea and determine that that's going to be the thing? Yeah. I, I think first, there's a lot of luck of timing and the people you're around. Um, some of the people I was around just happen to come from very different disciplines. And that was a very important element. Much of this podcast talks about how you grow. And one of the big lessons has been getting people who are equally excellent, but equally diverse. What I mean by that is I came from business, a little bit of technology, a love of design, but obviously it's very hard for any one person to spike along every single dimension. So my founding team really came from design backgrounds, technology backgrounds, uh, media and business. And it was the confluence of those people and those discussions that led us to see an opportunity that if we can bridge left and right side thinking, we really had an opportunity to build some large-scale applications people didn't think about. And the time frame was just perfect. I mean, it was near perfect timing when we launched, and we were able to build to well over a $100 million business inside of five years. That's quite a uh, period of time, that five years. What was it like going through that five years with your co-founders? What what was that experience like? Well, I, I don't think we've ever had since that time an aberration 
in the economy, such as the dot-com boom. So we had near-perfect timing when we started. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring was at a very rapid pace. We were, you know, three people in my apartment to suddenly having 500, 600, 700, 800 people, suddenly writing columns in publications every week, suddenly being a, a poster child of, of, of the kind of age. But if that was perfect timing, including doing a second-round funding at the time was a record-setting $100 million the flip side of it, we had a wild and crazy ride taking the company public during a period where the NASDAQ lost 30 plus percent of its value. Right. And the day we were going public was actually, uh, I can say this, I, I know almost exactly when the dot-com crash happened because we were going public on that April day of uh, 11th, uh, 2000. So it was a whirlwind of experience afterwards, you know, quite dark, quite bleak seeing the nuclear winter of the dot-com fallout, and having to reset the whole mindset around what it was we were really trying to be and what it was we practically needed to do. Yeah, how do you strip away all that happened over the course of those five years and extract out what was really valuable in it so that you can rebuild for your next company? How do you decide how to move forward? It's, It's hard to do it all then. I've written about it much more recently and probably over the last 10 years, I think you need a a period of reflection. Mm -hmm. At that time and point, you're just going through a a odd conflagration of emotions. You are upset, you are angry, you're shameful, you're humiliated. Imagine coming back to your office where the night before you're staying at a New York hotel expecting to go and basically ring that bell at NASDAQ. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest lessons is you can't define success in an organization solely by the extrinsic metrics. Going public, getting a fundraise, making X dollars, those are all extrinsic markers of success. So I look back now and think how fortuitous I was yeah. to have had that lesson early because it really made me understand much, much deeper what it means to have success in a company and some of these other elements of culture, of people that ultimately really matter much, much more over the long run. Is it the difference between thinking about the exit and the moment and sort of the destination and the journey? That's one way. Absolutely the journey versus the exit. But I think all great businesses start with a purpose. Mm. And I think you have to imbue that purpose, imbue that sense of calling into your organization authentically. Really, really great lasting businesses have a real deep, authentic heart, soul, sense of purpose, a noble calling that is well, well beyond the actual product or the profit. What's an example of a business like that? I think we all would like to believe that our businesses are purpose-driven. but what what is a true example? I, I, I think I think think of any company that you actually feel good at going. And a purpose doesn't have to be so lofty a social impact, but look at some of the recent cultural issues that have happened in the airlines of a United and Delta and contrast that to your travel experience at Southwest mm-hmm. or at JetBlue. Think of a any clothing company you go to and then think of Patagonia and what they stand for, uh, sustainability and environment, giving back and understanding there's an interrelationship between what we take out and what we consume and what we have to do for the the next generation. Uh, Trader Joe's, you can go on and on about companies that just have some higher calling. I, I like to think in my most recent 
business endeavors are one of them. Mini Lux, a nail salon chain. People will look and say, wow, you're doing a nail salon chain now, Tony? But that to me is not a beauty business. The higher calling and purpose is delivering moments of self-love. Hmm. So purpose is a higher calling than often the uh, business descriptor that a crunch base or a VC might label. You mentioned Patagonia, which is very well known for sort of social impact and taking stands on things from environmentalism to parental leave. Often now, people expect companies to um, not just deliver a product, but also to, quote unquote, be good um, and to stand for something, even sometimes to the extent of taking on political or moral stances in a very public way. Does that idea resonate with you? And do you think consumers are setting companies up for fair expectations with this? I think consumers, especially this next millennial generation, are much more conscious. So I feel that there's a movement of conscious consumerism. To the extent that that needs to be defined, that there are pro-socialistic and, and altruistic behaviors, I think there there's a lot of gray in there, the degree to which you need to do that. I actually believe that much, much more important than all of those things than, um, you know, the extra week off, the extra day off, the flexibility mm-hmm. is something much, much more basic. And that is just having authentic care in terms of one's development in an organization. And that at a base level of having truth of what the organization stands for and compassion towards your colleagues Um, And sometimes that gets manifested, that people need flexible time, but a lot of it just comes to a philosophy as to whether the leadership and culture is about leaders who produce other leaders or leaders who just want followers. Mm -hmm. So that's actually transitioned from, you know, the good company to the good people in that company, um, which is the focus of of your current book. What does a good person look like to you? Yeah. You know, this was a question that fascinated me. I think I've just been fortuitous through my different career points and different businesses I've launched and thinking about the ones I've invested behind to really be surrounded by good people. Yet when I use that term and everyone says it, hey, we're, we're all about good people. And I say, well, what do you mean? And whole strings of words come out. Sure. But it's one of those things that's really, really hard to define. The first thing I mean by it is that goodness Whilst you need a baseline of competency, we need to start defining that word beyond competency. You know, we are long on goodness of competency. We are short on goodness of character and values. So that's that's level one. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what that means in terms of types of values that we want, we want values like truth. We want values like compassion. And we want to redefine this notion of winning in the context of wholeness. An ability to do the best to which you are capable towards the calling or purpose that the organization or leader has set forth. The other elements of goodness that are important to me and that that I think are different than before, and I didn't call the book character for a specific reason, is that we have now come to almost expect that there is something bad going to happen, an Enron, a WorldCom, uh, a Theranos, um, cultural issues, Uber, and, you know, know, Wells Fargo. You can go on and on the list, and it's almost an expectation. So goodness has almost become defined as avoiding bad. Character has become one like, hey, we're in this studio, I leave my phone, and you say, hey, you know, I should return that to Tony, or I should keep it. You returning it, oh, you're a good person. Right. Actually, goodness is about doing good whenever you are able to do good, not just when you're tested. And and so much of character and goodness has been now 
defined as just avoiding bad when you're tested, a moral test, a moment of truth. Got it. As opposed to whenever you're in that position, do good. Do you take that opportunity to do so? I think sometimes it's easy to look at this stuff in the past and to critique it looking back. How do you do this in the moment when yeah. you've got crises flying left and yeah. right and you've got meetings and you're running back and forth? How do you take something that is abstract and make it practical? Yeah, so great question. I think there's two things. One, a constant of any great leadership is Mm self-awareness. So finding ways to practice your self-awareness, whether that's writing in a journal, whether that's asking peers to call you out, whether that's doing psychometric tests, you know, formal feedback. There's lots of ways to improve your self-awareness and understanding the biases that you have between competency and character. Very practically... Um, to lessen the burden of how much you have to do, think about your talent selection, development, and retention policies and philosophies. And uh, I'll give concrete examples there. When you're interviewing talent now, yeah. right? again, avoid the competency bias. What do I mean? One of the most popular questions interviewers ask, what's your greatest weakness? Mm-hmm. It's useless. There's only three answers. I'm too detail-oriented. Oh, my colleagues say I work too hard. Right. And the hallmark card of them all, the mother of them all is, I care too much. Yeah. You, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a rehearsed answer. So try to use interviews as an opportunity to have a conversation, reveal character. One of, one of my colleagues has said the best 100% hit rate he's had is asking someone to cook dinner with them. Hmm. And, and just what feeling do you get in doing that? Do you feel a sense of affection, respect, a sense of pride of this potential colleague? And if you can actually stem the, the issue at the inflow moment, yeah. you, you solve for a lot, right? Because you get people that actually are believers that leadership is a, a duty and privilege to serve and imprint goodness onto others. So how you even ask your questions and how you develop and mentor people with that same philosophy are important ways to better this in the organization. How quickly can you personally spot whether somebody else is a good person? It's hard. Most, most times character and goodness are expressed longitudinally. You mm-hmm. get to know someone. So think, um, you, you know, think, flip it around. How long does it take for you if you were out there, for example, in dating scene to figure out if someone is good right. or, or bad for right. you, right? Is it like sometimes, you know, you, you figure it out on, you know, you, you don't even have to get into the first date. Other times it just takes a while. So the, the, the real trick or practice of practicing goodness is just getting better at, at honing your own intuition and shaping your own goodness. When you shape your own goodness, your intuition for others improves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give another example. As opposed to asking when you have someone that you're evaluating for references, which again are pretty useless right. because you know who's going to give you a bad reference? You should be asking something along the lines, Megan, I want you to tell me about three very junior, even intern people that you have so positively impacted in their life and tell me what they're going to say when I call them. Hmm. And that's a very, very different perspective. I'm much more excited to talk to the people who have been developed as opposed to people that were simply there that this person happened to be reporting to. So there's competency. Yeah. And we know how to separate competency from goodness. How do you separate goodness from just likable? Yeah. Well, I, I think likability is, is a factor. I think I often use the post-interview litmus test for myself 
um, do, I, do I have a level of collegial likability or affection for this person? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have some level of chemistry. It's actually been shown that mentorship without a base level of likability, without a base level of collegiality, actually has neutral to negative effects. All the research has shown that. Hmm. So you need to have a base level of likability. The problem comes about when likability trumps mutual respect in terms of quality of work um, and standards. Likability trumps or violates values. And those things can really be disruptive to an organization. So for me, it's pretty simple. Likeability is, is a, a component of truth, which is, which is the foundation of, of goodness. But you have to have common values and common standards. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself that. Like, you know, yes, I like the person, but do I really feel I have common values, common standards, right? Yep. So you evaluate teams as well, kind of as part of your sure. work. and. and- you look for these traits within teams. How do you factor in a diversity of approaches when you're trying to find people who have common values, you're trying to find people who share this goodness within them? Where does diversity fit in there? Oh, it fits in huge. Um, Common values and common standards absolutely does not mean common approaches. Mm. In fact, the language I use in my book, Good People, to try to describe the values of goodness, it, it starts with truth. And truth is really about the mindset of humility, the mindset of humility that leads to deep self-awareness of your strengths and weaknesses and allows you to act with integrity. Only when you have that baseline of truth can you have compassion. And compassion is about the mindset of openness, not to prejudge. So that really means you have to accept a diversity of excellence. It's Lincoln's cabinet, right? You need to have a diversity of excellence to get the best result. Right? You, 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 know, you have to have common interests, not common positions. Yeah. So it's not, as you're describing it, something that you are or you aren't. Uh, it's something that you can turn on in a moment if you, if you haven't previously. Not only can it. you turn it on, I actually believe that you can cultivate mm-hmm. character and values. It, it's a really, really important point. One of my prior great mentors, he led all of people development and the value system for many, many years at McKinsey and Company and mentored the current CEO of McKinsey. And the short story of him, he decided he would make his entire partnership career dedicated towards the mentorship of others and the cultivation, not of just their skills, but their character. Mm. And the way he did that was he bought a 300-page book and he waited till someone came to him to say thank you for doing this. And he would write down the reason they came, what they thanked him for, what worked, what didn't work. And he decided he would retire when that 300-page book was filled. It took him over 30 years. Wow. And he had 300 chapters of, of people that had come by and there, there were several techniques to use to develop character and that sense of openness. Another, another mentor of mine, Jay Chiat, said, you know, we need to have this 24 by three rule. The next time someone gives you an idea, can you wait 24 seconds to pause? Mm-hmm. Can you wait 24 minutes before you criticize? And can you possibly wait 24 hours, an entire day to think about every reason why that idea might work before you allow your brain to signal every reason why it won't. The reason that's so important is because we are cognitively wired actually against goodness. So you have to train yourself to understand that, you know, hey, let me use that 24 by three optimism rule. Let me understand that, you know, my my brain is wired for the short term. 
right? Daniel Kahneman has, has written about this, like, you know, our, our fast and slow brain. So everything in life, especially in the worlds we talk about, you know, the people listening, you know, sprint, 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 but you have to like remind your brain, I'm in a marathon. Yeah. And we're just not wired like that. If we were, people wouldn't have trouble dieting, people would quit smoking, and people would retire millionaires. But we, we don't do that. It reminds me a lot of what you were saying earlier around how businesses are so focused on the exit and they're not necessarily focused on the sustaining value over right. time. People seem to be focused on the short term or what's next or you know how to move quickly as opposed to necessarily changing their their ruler to yeah. uh, measure their, their career and their value in a, lot, a different way. Yeah, I, I think it's at the, one of the things at the heart of the lack of institutional trust and the decline of engagement in the workplace. I think it's a sad statement, even with all the great startups we have in this country, that two-thirds of employees are either indifferent or want to quit their workplace. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds is the number. And institutional trust is down to a 17-year low across all four of the major institutions. So much of that has to do with the, the fact that we have long-term opportunities, long-term issues, but short-term actions. Yeah. You know, we, 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 want, we want the baby out in two months, right? We want to find a steroid. We want the plastic surgery. We want the quick fix. Yep. Everything is a light switch. Maybe fail fast sometimes is really stupid. Hmm. Maybe really hard, tough problems take long time. And they, and they take lots of energy, and they require slow, compounded growth, right? People were very quick during that dot-com time. We talked to write off Warren Buffett in 1999, saying that this guy in the Midwest was an idiot wrapped in a moron for not understanding anything in technology. People who stick to values and principles and conviction and have a point of view tend to do okay in the long run. Yeah. So let's say someone's listening and they realize like, God, my, my culture at my company is broken. It's, it's wired wrong. Mm -hmm. How do you go about the process of rewiring an entire culture? And I guess there's kind of two questions in that. How do you do that if you are a CEO? And how do you do that if you're not, if you're, you know, a marketing manager? Yeah, well, first you have to diagnose what type of cultural shift and what, what, what type of cultural brokenness do you have? I mean, one type of cultural shift is comes about when you're changing business models. I was part with my business partner of the shift from a newspaper business, Thompson, to um, shifting that culture to enterprise internet and workflow solutions to Thomson Reuters and creating mm -hmm. one of the largest media transformations. That's a that's that's a a challenge culture, but you're you're shifting people to a, a new place and changes highly uncomfortable. There's a certain set of things you do there. I think what you're getting at is a different type of cultural issue, like the stories we read currently of the Ubers, et cetera, where you know, the culture does not feel like a necessarily a positive culture all the time. And, and I always give this advice, which is in part, spoiler alert, part of the, the conclusion of the book is that if all of us committed just to not do the Sun Yen 300 chapters of that mentor who helped me, mm -hmm. But just imagine a book with 10 chapters. Who's your first? Can we each commit to just positively imprint upon 10 people, bring them along, help them get the A, don't always mark their paper, yeah. and just start with one. It is infectious. I believe goodness is infectious. And I think you know every waterfall starts with a drop. And I think that people tend to rally around good people. Also being realistic, it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. But, um, you know, and if, if it's not changing, get out. So many companies just don't have time, right? They've got to show results in a short 
window they've they've got to hit that next month because they're just getting started how do you imprint this kind of a philosophy of the long view when you've got to hire a team asap you've got to um show put some scores on the on the board as soon as possible i think this is a bigger issue with capitalism today i i believe that we're in a protracted period of microwave capitalism and so many of the good things are, are slow roast ideas. As, yeah. I, as I said, between short term and long term, it's why in our fund Q-Ball, we elected to have a permanent capital pool, an evergreen capital pool with no set time frame. And so I think it comes back to what you set as expectations on the outset and, and having the strength of spine and conviction that it's okay to be patient, right? Like um, Warren Buffett is not trying to get a 700% return in a single year. He's saying slow and steady wins the race. So Mm -hmm. in a world where everyone's trying to build a unicorn, I think there's a handful of us in search of sea turtles. And I think, you know, you, you just have to have that leadership philosophy. And I think more people are ready to embrace that than we recognize. But I think, you know, you can't just be a lemming and fall into that trap of, let me have instant value capture and not be part of real long-term value creation. I mean, most things that come out of the microwave taste like crap. Yeah. So this concept of purpose first, goodness, taking mm-hmm. the long view, being patient, does it ever feel like you're, you're, you're in an uphill battle with culture? You bet. How yeah, I mean, one of, one of my board meetings recently, you know, and I apologize to that board member because he'll, if, if he's listening, but said, you know, Tony, have you become a philanthropist? Are you a philanthropist? Oh, are, do you have a social impact? Like it's a dirty fund? word. And, and it's almost, yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're meant to be a capitalist. And, and, you know, I just am shocked that there is an assumption that compassion and competitiveness or compassion and competition are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I actually think that, you know, the best way to be long-term competitive is actually create compassionate culture to create uh, cultures where there is a level of, of, of servant leadership, of bringing others along and, and thinking generatively yeah. towards what will that next generation be. So I actually don't think they're incompatible. I think, again, what's incom- incompatible so much of the time are timeframes and people's compensation scheme. Yeah. Um, that, that there's usually something else because usually people can intellectualize that oh, of course, if you're patient, you take the right time to make this, it'll, it'll, it'll be good. Yeah. All right. So I want to wrap things up with an idea that you brought up earlier, which is this idea of your your 350-page book. Who's in your version of that book? Well, it has to have my kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, it's it's hard to believe that I have a son turning 13 this weekend, so he's uh, he's top of mind. So I think it, it has to include family. I think that's critical. I have a brother in entrepreneurship who went through a very, very tough period that I wrote in a book of going through a long, long battle with cancer. And then I think, I don't know if it's for me to say yet, but in writing this book, it, it was a joy and, and, and it was so heartfelt and humbling to have oral histories and stories with people where we had a shared experience and to know at least uh, some set of what were once junior interns or, or junior people that have far surpassed me in their accomplishments now attribute at least a, a small part of their journey to things we had done together. 
All right. From the book you're still writing to the one you just wrote, the book is called Good People, The Only Leadership Decision That Really Matters. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Jet. You can find it in any local bookstore, I would imagine. And you can hear more about how you take this abstract concept and turn it into something you can really live and you can instill into your business. Thank you so much for taking the time, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Megan. This was fun. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter, at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.